The following audio is from Morningstar Baptist Church in Dayton, Ohio. For more information about Morningstar, visit MorningstarDayton.org. Good morning, everybody. Man, again, I'm glad that you're here today. And uh, we're continuing our series this morning called The Mountain. And for those of you who've been here the last couple weeks, you know we've been in Matthew chapter 5. And we're walking through uh, this, this dialogue that Jesus had, this, this message that he kind of shared on the mountain. And that's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I, the more I dive into it as we go week by week, I don't, I'm not, I don't do a whole lot of series, but this is by far becoming one of my favorite ones. Because as I dive into it, man, it's, it's hitting me. Because we're looking at the words of Jesus as he describes to us with his own words what a follower of him looks like. Like where, what better place to go to find out what a Christian or what a follower of Christ should do, should be like. What kind of relationship should we have with God and with others than to hear Jesus say it. And I can only imagine what it must have been that day. with Jesus. It's like a one-day retreat with Jesus as the guest speaker. I mean, how awesome would that have been to be able to hear him? And before we dive in today in Matthew chapter 5, we got, I want to remind us who all is in the crowd that day. There's three groups of people sitting on the side of this mountain listening to Jesus as he talks. And one of them is the religious elite. Let's just call them that. The Bible uses the words Pharisees, scribes. There were some rabbis there. But the guys who kind of what we would say, they knew everything, right? They just, they had it all together. They were all about the external and living uh, a certain way and all that kind of stuff. But you had them in the crowd and they didn't like Jesus. And then you had a group of people, let's just call them the common people. That's not really a put down, but it's like just, they're not religious experts. They're just there. They're, maybe they're just wrapped up in all like the excitement of who Jesus is. Maybe Maybe they're just really into all the miracles he's doing or how everywhere they go when there's a large crowd, Jesus feeds them. Maybe that's like they're just excited about that. But then the third group of people was those who were true followers. Like they're not just tag-alongs, like the middle group, and they're not the religious experts who are anti-Jesus. They're like they've made that decision, that choice to follow Jesus. And last week we looked at that, that Jesus actually took a little sidebar and talked to them and said, you are salt and light. So all three groups of these people are here, and when Jesus starts talking in verse 17, he's talking to all three of them. But what he's going to say is actually going to be painful, okay? Ben, where are you at, Ben? Where's Ben? Ben, come here for a second. All right, so listen, Ben's been here for like six months now, all right? And I haven't had an opportunity to hurt him yet, so um, today's a good day for that. No, I'm just kidding. I am super proud of Ben and Christine. They've been doing an amazing job. I gave a huge blessing to our church, and you're killing it, man. You're doing awesome. Thanks. But I say that because I'm about to hurt you, okay? Sorry. <laughs> but, no, you are doing a great job. And I, I love working with Ben, the fact that he's part of this team, and it is fun to work with you, all right? But here's the deal. All right, so, so Ben's here. All right, so I have some duct tape, okay? Um, why are you moving away from me, man? Come here. I'm not going to put it. I know, but I'm not going to put it over your mouth, I promise. All right. Even though somebody told me this morning that's what I needed to do. So for me, I'm not going to mention any names, Ashton. Anyway, so um, you. <laughs> so I want you to pretend this strip of duct tape is a Band-Aid, a very large Band-Aid, okay? All right, so let me see your arm, man. This is all out of love, by the way. Okay, all right, no, come here. Let me see it. Don't be a baby. All right, so here's the deal. Ben's got very hairy arms, too, by the way. So uh, anyway, so we're going to pretend that Ben... 
has an injury. He has a wound. I'm going to make sure I just get that in there. Thank you. All right. Okay, anyway, so Ben has an injury. He has a Band-Aid on there, okay? At, I know I'm mean. I know, but it's fun for me. Okay, so, so Ben's got an injury. He's got a bandage on there. What you know, those of you, like, and you're a nurse, and Lucy, you're a nurse, you know you can't leave bandages on forever. At some point, the bandage has to come off as much as we might not want it to come off, right? You know where I'm going with this? Okay, all right. I didn't tell Ben ahead of time, so this is great. You're earning your paycheck this week. So anyway, um, because here's why. If you leave a bandage on a wound, over time, like at first it's meant to keep stuff out, like debris and dirt and stuff out, and also to help with the healing process. But if you leave it on too long, it keeps moisture on the wound. It also traps bacteria on the wound, and it actually can cause rot. It can do worse than having the Band-Aid or bandage on it. Does that make sense? So that's why when you see people have surgery or get injured, they're told to change their dressings out, right? To change the bandages out, to keep infection away and to keep rot away. I'm just letting it soak for a minute. Okay, all right. So there's two ways I can take this bandage off. One way is I can take and just slowly kind of, that hurts, I know it does. I can, I can hear it. So I can slowly kind of pull. Yeah, let's not do that. And that's a long strip. I'm sure that would be some kind of violation of OSHA regulations if I did that to you. So we're not going to torture you. The other way to take this bandage off is to do what? To just rip it, right? But nobody wants to do that, do they? In fact, sometimes we're like, I'd just rather keep it on. I know. <laughs> we got some loving people here at Morningstar. This is great. Yeah, I knew your wife would be off. And we can put it on his leg too if you want. So, yeah, all right. Um, but we got to take it off. I remember when I had my wreck and I, I crushed my shoulder. They actually had to, re- they had to rebuild my, my shoulder. They cut me from here to here and cut me in the front and the back. It was a cool story to share from the time I was chasing a bad guy. I got in a wreck. Anyway, so, um, but they had to rebuild it. And I remember after the surgery, I went home, and they said, 12 hours, you need to change your bandage. Well, I'm sleeping on the couch because it's super uncomfortable. I can't get shoulder surgery. It's horrible, by the way. It, like, it was super painful. And I'm like, okay, it's time to change my bandage. And I can barely move anyway. And I start pulling that bandage off, and the, it had clotted to the bandage. Oh. But it has to come off, right? And, and I'm like, Mandy, you got to come help me. She goes, nope. <laughs> I was like, all right. Um, so our neighbor came over, and her and, and, and Mandy both pulled that thing off. And it, it was not pleasant. But there's only one or two ways to get it off. And I know it's going to hurt, okay? But the best way to get this off is just to rip it off. Wow. You can't see this, all right? But... There's a lot of hair on this duct tape. All right, Ben, you're the best, man. Thank you. I appreciate Give a Ben a hand, man. This is great. Next week, even better. We're pulling out knives. Anyway, so, um, but here's what we got to understand. When we get to verse 17, Jesus has done all the blesseds. Blessed are they, blessed are the, and he said, you're the salt and light. But when he gets to verse 17, Jesus is about to rip some Band-Aids off. He's taken the gloves off. And he's about to get extremely real with them. He says, look, this is time that we do this. Like bandages that have been there for a long time in their lives. Bandages of religion. Bandages of self-righteousness. Bandages of just avoiding the conversation about what God expects of my life. And Jesus is like, okay, now it's time to understand it's all about how you relate to God. And so we're going to rip some Band-Aids off. And I just want to, let me warn you right now. As uncomfortable as it might have been for them on this day on the side of the mountain, it's going to be uncomfortable for us. I said a long time ago, when I got, listen, it's sometimes the things in the word of God, they, 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 it hurts. 
It's uncomfortable. But understand that uncomfortableness is not coming from me. It says God wants to work in your life. And healing can only take place when we start ripping some bandages off. Sometimes we can sit there and we can rot in our Christianity all day long. Or we can allow Jesus to work in our life a little bit. Kind of pull some bandages off. And while it might be uncomfortable while we're sitting in here and it's uncomfortable for me while I'm studying it. When we allow Jesus to have that work, healing take, takes place. And new purpose takes place. And so bear with it this morning because Jesus, listen, he's talking to the religious elite who don't think they need him. He's talking to the ordinary people who don't understand why they need him. And he's talking to his followers who need to appreciate what he's going to do for them. And so this morning I only have like two real points here. And the first one is the setup. The setup. This is Jesus pointing out the band-aid. Okay. The setup. Look, look in verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Jesus says, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or even the smallest stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Look in verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness... All right, so what does he mean by righteousness? He means unless your good works, unless that surpasses or exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, get this next statement. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, look, I'm not here to destroy the law. What was happening is he was traveling around and people were accusing him of being anti-God's law. Like, well, you're just anti the Ten Commandments. You're anti the prophets. You're trying to shake things up. Like, that's not what it's about. But Jesus, so that this statement Jesus makes is, I'm not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. I came to complete the law. In other words, what you can't do, Jesus says, that's what I came to do. He says, I'm not anti-law. I'm not anti-Old Testament. Think of it this way. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had one law, one rule, right? Don't eat this one tree. And they broke the one law. Then you go from Genesis to Exodus and you have Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of stone that God had etched on ten commandments. Ten laws. And man struggled keeping those. Right? We all struggle with that. And, and, there were, and I know there was a lot more rules about sacrifices and some civil ceremonies, but there were ten laws. God never gave the ten commandments so that we could keep them and earn our way to heaven. The Ten Commandments given in the Old Testament, you might not have ever understood this, were not given to bring salvation. That's never what the Ten Commandments were about. The Ten Commandments were given so that man would understand what God's standard is and realize how they could never measure up. And that would create in them this need to understand for salvation. Like here's God's standard. I'll never measure up to it. God, I need you. Does that make sense? That's what the Ten Commandments were for, to reveal in man our brokenness and our sinfulness that we'll never measure up to God. And that's why God gave them. And it was, this, it was not a benchmark to obtain. It was meant as a way to reveal just how broken we are when we can't even keep ten of God's rules. What happened was almost from the very time that Moses came down from the mountain, religious leaders started adding all kinds of different rules to the Ten Commandments. Okay, well, this is good, but we got to add this just to make sure we don't break that one. And we got to add this just to make sure we don't come close to breaking that one. By the time they got done, by the time Jesus' day, when Jesus was speaking, 
There were over 613 additional rules and regulations that have been put on in addition to the Ten Commandments by man. 613. All right, so here's the deal. If we couldn't keep one in the Garden of Eden, and we can't keep 10 given on Mount Sinai, there ain't no way we're keeping 613 of them, right? There's no way. Maybe you're better than I am. I don't know, but there's no way I am. It had become simply about behavior modification, which misses the entire point of the Ten Commandments. It became all about just do this and don't do this and you're good. And let's add some other stuff to make sure we're even better. Does that make sense? It's all about, it became about the behavioral modification, but behavioral modification never works. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to complete it. The thing that was meant to reveal mankind's brokenness and emptiness before God. Look at verse 20 again. He says this, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom. Now listen, that's a Band-Aid pool right there. That's a killer statement, right? Because what Jesus says, he says, you're not enough. At this moment, Jesus says, your righteousness is not enough. It's not long enough. There's no reach to it. It's not wide enough. It doesn't cover every indiscretion. It's not tall enough. It's not high enough. It can't satisfy anything. And that was a killer dagger right to the religious elite. That Jesus said, you're not enough. You're keeping all these things, but it's not enough. In other words, you have to have more righteousness to get into heaven. And they're probably going, I'm doing everything I possibly can do. How can I do more? And it was a hopeless feeling for the ordinary people that day. The ordinary people who weren't religious experts, they're, like, they're, they're probably thinking, well, man, I, I can't even keep up with the Pharisees and the religious people. How in the world can I exceed that? Like if, I, if my own righteousness isn't good enough and their righteousness isn't good enough, then who has a chance? Jesus points away from the law as a system of external rules and he directs them to what it's really meant to be. It's all about the relation of the heart to God. In verse 20, he talks about the righteousness, but he's referring to what he talked about in verse 17, that he came to fulfill the law, that because he came to live perfect, the only one to ever keep all the laws, all of God's standards and statutes was Jesus. And because he was perfect, he was the only one who was the perfect sacrifice that was needed to complete the law. So what that looks like for you and I, uh, bear with me, you and I on our own righteousness can't ever get to heaven. We can't. We're not enough. It's you and I on the side of that mountain that day. And Jesus saying, your righteousness, your good works, not enough. But Jesus says, my righteousness is enough. I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to take your spot. So when you put your faith in me, you are covered in my righteousness, which is far exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees. that makes sense? Jesus says, look, I came to complete it, not to abolish it. And he gives us his righteousness And it's a righteousness that's beyond all walls, wider than all mere prohibitions. It's deeper than every part of love's sacrifice. The setup. Jesus says you're not enough. That's a Band-Aid pool. But here's what he says. Number two is, is the pool. He starts getting to the heart of it. So Jesus just got done telling them that on their own, they could never keep the Ten Commandments. They could never fulfill God's law. And you know what they started doing? The same thing you and I would have done if we were there. Wait a minute. You're saying I can't keep it? 
well, wait a minute, I, I haven't killed anyone. Right? They're doing what you and I would have done. They start examining their own lives in, in relation to the Ten Commandments, and they go to the worst ones, right? Well, I haven't killed anyone. And I, and I, haven't, I haven't had an affair on my, on my spouse, so well, that's the two biggest ones right there, right? And I, and I keep my word and my promises, so and I try to be a good person. So they're comparing. They're like, okay, well, wait a minute. I, I'm good. Like, I'm not, I'm not evil. They never focus on some of the other Ten Commandments. They always, you and I do the same thing. Well, I'm not a robber, right? I, I didn't knock over the, the, the bank. I mean, I'm good. So that's what they're doing. And because Jesus knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, it's almost as if what he says next, he's like reading their thoughts, and he's like, I'm going to answer your question you're asking right now that you don't even know I know you're asking. Look in verse 21. He starts with this. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. Imagine you were there, and that's what you were thinking about. Well, I haven't killed anyone. Then Jesus, then Jesus goes, you've heard it said, don't murder. Like, wow, where's this guy coming from? Like, he knows what I'm thinking. This is crazy. Jesus starts with the biggie too. You've heard it said, don't murder. And whoever murders will be subject to the judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to the judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't had an affair. I've kept, my, I've kept all my oaths, all my, all my promises. Jesus then goes, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you're angry, you've murdered them in your heart. You haven't killed anyone, but Jesus says, but have you been angry? Have you had like the selfish angry, the anger like, how dare they? Why did they do this to me? Why didn't they do this for me? They should have known. Can you believe what they did to me? Jesus says, have you ever harbored anger in your heart? It's not just not killing someone. It's your relation of your heart to God. So Jesus said, if you're harboring anger, then you've done the same thing in your heart. He says the intent of the heart is where we've broken this law. It's not just enough just not to, not to kill someone, but to harbor anger, any anger, without resolving it would be the same as murdering them in our own heart. So, okay, well, some of you even this morning might go, well, I'm not that kind of angry person. Jesus doesn't stop there. Then he says, Whoever insults his brother, whoever calls his brother a name. Basically, that, that word insult is, is that word raka. It means empty-headed, stupid, okay? It's like looking at someone going, you're an idiot, all right? Jesus said, have you ever put someone down? Have you ever looked at someone and said, you don't know what you're talking about. You're an idiot. You're a moron, Right? Jesus says calling someone a name, putting someone down could be, it's the same thing. And then he says this, like not just calling someone that kind of a name. Then he says if you call someone a fool. That word fool doesn't mean like, hey, you're a fool. It means you're a worthless fool. It means that you're so worthless, even God finds you worthless. So let's examine our hearts a little bit this morning. I haven't killed anyone. Okay, I don't harbor anger. Have you said words you shouldn't say to someone? Have you called someone names? Have you put someone down? Have you put somebody under where you think you are at in your own mind, right? Well, in the hierarchy of things, I'm more important. Jesus says it's the same thing. It's all tied together. It gets a little deeper, doesn't it? It kind of hurts when we look at it that way. Jesus talks to those who are followers 
after this in verse 23. He kind of changes and he talks to those who are followers. Look at verse 23. He says, so if you're offering a gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. So here's what Jesus talks about. He says, now look, here's where it goes even deeper. For those of you who are following me, you got to get this. you got to understand this. If you're coming to worship, and you're coming to offer, you're trying to live a life of purpose, but your brother or your sister or someone you know has something against you, he says, go to them. Now, here's the deal. Notice he didn't say, if you have something against someone else. He says, if you know somebody who has something against you, who they're upset about you, go to them and be reconciled. What does that do? That puts the responsibility on both of us, really. But I think it's very interesting. He says, if you know someone's upset with you, go make it right as best you can. You can't control what they do, but you can go apologize. You can go and try to amend things and reconcile things because it's better to delay your worship than than to delay reconciliation. Jesus says, make it right. If there's disunity between you and someone, then deal with it, whether you're the offended party or the offending party. Mark chapter 11, Jesus says this, and when you stand praying, forgive. Forgive. If you have aught against anyone, forgive them, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you of your trespasses. We're talking about broken fellowship. As a believer in Christ, my relationship with God will never be broken, but I can break fellowship with him. Like I never have to get saved again. I never have to go through that, but I can break fellowship. And you know the quickest way for me to break fellowship with God? The quickest way for you to break fellowship with God? is to break fellowship with your brothers and sisters. That our prayers can be hindered if there's disunity between us and someone else. I love Isaiah, man. You read it later. Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 58. God basically tells them, look, don't you offer sacrifices to me? Don't you come worship me when there's sin in your heart, when there's disunity in your heart. In fact, it says that um, our prayers that are offered in wrath, our prayers that are offered with ill content towards someone else is gall. It's like bile to God. So make it right. Then he goes to the next biggie. Okay, so he covers murder, all right? Then he goes this one. Look, look at verse 27. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. Man, two big ones. Well, I'm not in a, I don't have affairs and I don't kill anybody. Jesus, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, verse 28. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. But I've never had an affair. Jesus says, okay, that's great. But have you ever looked at and lusted after sexually another person who's not your spouse? And if you have, then you've committed adultery in your heart. What Jesus is combating here is the rabbis during this time had this teaching. They taught this. If your intention was good, then it counts as a good deed. But your bad thoughts are only bad if you act on them. So Jesus is in the middle of a culture here that says, hey, it's only bad if you you actually do what you're thinking. So in their minds, like, you can do whatever you want up here because the Ten Commandments don't, don't... technically cover what you think. It only covers what you do. So as long as I'm not doing, I'm okay. 
And Jesus is hitting that head on. He is ripping a band-aid off. Hey, I know some of you guys are teaching this and some of you guys are following this, that it's only bad if you act on it. But what I'm telling you, if you lust after another person, it's the same as committing adultery in your heart. When two people covenant to be husband and wife, for one of them to entertain thoughts of relating sexually to someone else other than their spouse, it makes that one guilty of breaking the covenant. And they've committed adultery against a spouse, even if they've only done it in thought. Here's, here's where we've gotten off track on this before, is just like they did. The standard has always been holiness. God's standard has always been purity. What we've done somewhere along the way, is we've taken God's standard surrounding sexual things, and we've moved it away from holiness and purity, and we put it around virginity. Well, as long as I remain a virgin before I'm married, I'm good. You know you can be a virgin and be unpure? You know you can be a virgin and lust after other people? Jesus said, look, the, the standard isn't virginity. The standard is purity. And then what we do is marry people. We're like, well, as long as I'm not having a physical affair with someone, I'm not committing adultery. And we've taken that standard and moved it away from holiness and purity and moved it to just an affair-proof marriage. And Jesus is like, you're missing the point. Because it's not what you do on the outside, it's what is in here, your relation to God. This is how so many people justify pornography. Well, I'm not, I'm not sleeping with anyone else, so I'm good. I'm not hurting anyone else. I'm not having sex with anyone else, so it's not as bad. And Jesus says it's the very same thing. Ripping band-aids off. Men, the question then becomes, what are we allowing ourselves to look at? Well, no one sees it's not hurting anybody. Your relation to God is suffering. Your fellowship can be broken. Well, it's not pornography. You know, yeah. What are we looking at? If your wife was sitting right next to you, young guys, if your future wife was sitting right next to you, would you still look at it? Would you still watch it? It's a different question. And ladies, before you think we're going to leave you out, don't think you're immune from lusting. Well, not me. I, I, don't, I don't struggle with lusting after other men. Okay, but here's the deal. Do you compare? Do you compare your husband to other men? Well, if my husband was only like that guy. Well, if my husband only treated me like that guy treats his wife. Well, if my husband only took me places like that guy takes his wife places. Emotional affairs would be the same as a lustful affair. Look at verse 29. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. And then verse 30, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, if you look at something you shouldn't look at and you sin, pluck your eye out and throw it away. That's not what he's saying. Because a one-eyed person can lust just as easily as a two-eyed person. And a blind person can lust just as easily as a person who can see. And he's not saying, well, if your hand offends, you cut it off because a one-handed person can still sin. A no-handed person can still sin. What Jesus is talking about is we've got to go through drastic measures sometimes to help avoid this type of sin. That sometimes it's not enough to just say, okay, I just won't look at it anymore. You know the devil's a lot more powerful than that? You know he's a lot stronger than that? I use this when I counsel guys who come to me and talk to me about, I mean, I'm struggling with pornography. I'll say, okay, well, here's the deal. Like, when, like first of all, we deal with the heart issue. Like, you got to confess it, get it right with God. Let's talk about moving forward and past that. He can forgive you and make you brand new. And, and we talk about all that. And then I go, okay, now what are you going to do? 
because the images and the videos are still there. They're somewhere, easily accessible in our little magic boxes we carry around now, right? And so I tell them all the time, what are you willing to do to overcome this? You might need to block some apps on your phone. You might need to have your wife set a, a, a passcode or somebody you trust set a passcode so you don't struggle, you, you can't get to it. And here's what I get sometimes. Well, well how, how am I going to check the sports scores and the news? I don't know, get a newspaper, watch the evening news. Right? Well, that's just too drastic. You're right. But it's not my words. It's Jesus' words. Parents, what are we allowing our kids to have access to on their phones? And if you think that they're not going to try to access, access it, think again. That temptation is super powerful. That's why Jesus said you've got to take drastic action. See, I see a lot of guys come to me and they're so desperate to overcome this sin, but they're not desperate enough to take the drastic measures. And you know what happens? You give it two to three weeks and they're right back into it again. Jesus said this is big. Yeah, you might not be having sex with another woman or another man, but you're lusting in your heart. The Bible calls us out to bring our bodies under subjection. Okay. Then we get to the next one. Look at verse 31. Jesus uses a different phrase here. He uses the phrase, it was also said. Before this, he kept saying, you have heard it said. Now he says, it was also said. What Jesus is doing, it's a continuation of the previous thought. All right, so it's a continuation of the adultery talk. Look what he says. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This third example, Jesus is ripping a Band-Aid off. The problem of lust and the breakdown of commitments are evils that undermine our marriages. That's why these two passages are linked together. There was an ongoing debate at the time of Jesus between two schools of, of rabbi teaching about divorce. One was the Hillel school. And the Hillel school taught this, that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. If he woke up one day and said, I don't like you, under the Hillel rabbinical teaching, he could divorce his wife, no questions asked. Because they held that a marriage should be totally unifying in everything that happens. And so any mention of disunity gives you an out of the marriage. And so what the husband could do is go, well, I don't feel unified with you because I like someone else. Or I don't feel unified with you because I found a woman, she looks really pretty, and I don't want to have an affair, so I'm going to divorce you to marry her, so I'm not breaking a commandment. You guys see what Jesus is going with this? Jesus is attacking this school of thought that says you can divorce your wife for any reason at all. The other, this other school of thought was the Shammai rabbinical teaching that said the only way you could divorce her was for immodesty, which leaves the door wide open. You can interpret that any way you want. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders had made it so easy that a man could divorce his wife. Get this. Here's all he had to do. And a wife, by the way, could not divorce her husband. Only the husband could divorce her wife. And here's how easy it was. All he had to do was go somewhere public and mention a couple times in public that he's going to divorce his wife. Then write a piece of paper saying, I'm divorcing you, and hand it to her, and it was legal. You talk about not upholding the spirit of God's law. Like they were way off. So Jesus is talking about this idea that a man looks and he lusts after another woman, but he's already married, but he doesn't want to commit adultery because that's violating one of the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to, instead of committing adultery with this other woman, I'm going to divorce her. I'm done with you because I don't like you anymore. And I'm going to go marry this woman, and then that way we can be together physically, and now I'm not committing any sin. I'm all good. 
And Jesus takes that Band-Aid and he rips it right off. He says, no, you're not. Jesus here is not just not only taking a stance on the sanctity of marriage, but he is also taking a courageous stance in the defense of women and their value before God. And he rips this Band-Aid off saying, look, just because you physically haven't, haven't physically slept with another woman, if you lust after her body, it's as if you already have. Oh, and by the way, while I'm on the subject, you guys who are divorcing your wives so you can go marry another woman so you don't commit adultery, stop it. Even though man is looking at it and winking at it and approving it, God doesn't. Jesus says in his remark here that the only case, only in the case of sexual immorality, but the idea behind that Greek phrasing is a continual sexual immorality. Like, this is a lifestyle that they're just not stopping. It isn't a one and, oh, man, they, I'm done, I'm out. No, Jesus' plan is always for reconciliation if it can be there. So now for the elephant in the room. Okay, well, what about me? I'm divorced. What do I do now? Well, first of all, you've got to understand God loves you. God forgives and God is here to make you brand new. And if you find yourself in this area, you know what you do? You're like, I'm divorced, but I'm already married again. You know what you do? You honor God by serving and loving your spouse the way Jesus wants you to love. You honor God by serving and loving the spouse that you're married to right now the best way that you can to honor and bring glory to God. God isn't done with you. God hasn't cast you aside. He still loves you and your life is not over and your future is not over. Because our God makes everything brand new. Then Jesus goes into this in verse 33. Jesus says this. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors. So now he's back to his other phrase. Again, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors. You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't make an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by the earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but yet let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. So here's an interesting one. People in this day prided themselves in keeping their word. I don't break my promises. Like I'm an honest person. They would swear oaths or promises. At the time of Jesus, they would make a promise. They would swear by different things. They would either say, I promise by heaven and earth that I'm going to mow the grass. Right? Or they would promise by Jerusalem, I promise by Jerusalem I'm going to take the trash out tomorrow. Or if it was really serious, they would promise and they would say they would include God's name in the promise. But you know what Jesus is attacking here? And he even attacks it word for word. He says, stop promising by heaven and earth. Stop promising by Jerusalem. You know why? Because what they would do is they would make that promise and if they promised by heaven and earth, that gave them an out. Like they could break that promise. So if I told Mandy, hey, I promise... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mow the grass tomorrow. And tomorrow comes, and I say, I'm going to promise by heaven and earth, I'm going to mow the grass tomorrow. And I don't mow the grass tomorrow, and she tries to drag me before the elders because I broke my word. You know all I have to say is, I promise by heaven and earth. I didn't promise by the Lord. And nothing happens to me. It was a crazy system they had worked up that, hey, well, depending on how really serious I am about keeping this promise, I'll just promise different things. But if I promise by God's name, then I'll definitely keep that one. And Jesus said, stop it. <laughs> and Jesus even says, Stop promising. Now this is new. Jesus, stop making oaths. Just don't make one. What Jesus is saying is, why should you have to make a promise anyway? You should, lifestyle should be such that whatever you say, people just know is going to happen. 
Like as a believer, as a follower of me, if you say you're going to do something, Jesus says your lifestyle should be such that you do it. And nobody has to go, well, do you promise? Do you swear? Like how can I really count on you? As believers, this is the lifestyle he's calling us to. He's attacking the hypocrisy of the religious elite because they're guilty of making these promises. And he's setting a new standard for those who were, his, who were just in the crowd. And he's calling out his followers to a new, new mindset, a new culture. So what if we lived our lives in such a way that we did not need to swear an oath or make a promise? That just because we said it, it's going to be enough and we're bound to it. And I, I get it. We're all guilty of this. I'm, I'm just as guilty. We get lax. A lot of times we don't break a promise because we intentionally break it. A lot of times it's because we get busy or we forget. I, I'm really bad about that. Sometimes it's because we are broken and fallen human beings and we just don't live up to what we said. Jesus is calling us to live a life for our yeses to mean yes and our noes to mean no. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says it's better to not make a vow than to make a vow and break it. I saw a great cartoon the other day. I know it's like super theological. We're going to cartoon. But I saw this cartoon and it was this guy, this business owner, he was talking to Jesus. And he asked Jesus a question. He says, hey, Jesus, do you think I should put a Christian bumper sticker on the back of my business vehicle? Jesus asked him the question back. He says, why do you think it's important to do that? And the guy said, so that people, when they see it, they'll know that this is a Christian business run by a Christian. And I love the response that in the cartoon Jesus gave back to the guy. He said, how about you keep the bumper sticker off the vehicle and let's see if people can tell this is a Christian business run by a Christian business owner without the bumper sticker. By just the way you work and treat your employees and treat your customers and what you talk about when you're there. I thought that was profound. Like what if we just stopped focusing on the word Christian as much as we just start focusing on the lifestyle of what a follower should look like? Keeping our promises. Make sure that standard is back where it needs to be in holiness and purity. Not holding anger or disunity between each other. What if we just did that? The next thing, we're going to fly through the next two. Next thing is revenge. Look at verse 38. He says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I guarantee everybody here has heard that one before. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anybody slaps you on your right cheek, turn also the other one to him. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, give him your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two with him. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the ones who want to borrow from you. An eye for an eye and two for a tooth was found in the Old Testament, but it was never meant to be a required event. For instance, an example, if I intentionally or unintentionally knocked out Ben's eyeball, right? I pulled hair today, but we'll deal with that. But if I knocked out his eyeball, according to this, Ben could come and take my eyeball, right? But it was never meant to say that Ben has to come take my eyeball. What it was meant to do, why God put that in the Old Testament, was to set boundaries on what could be done, not what must be done. Because you know, you know human nature. If I put Ben's eyeball out, when he heals up, you know what he's going to come do to me? He's going to come cut my arms and my legs off. That will show you. So what God was saying in the Old Testament, he was setting a boundary of what could be done, not what had to be done, to make sure to keep people in check on judgment. Somewhere along the way, people started thinking it was their right to exact revenge, and they backed it up with Scripture. Well, the Bible says eye for an eye, so come here, bro. Right? And God says, I can do it. 
So Jesus, he quotes the Old Testament standard, but he lays out that underneath that standard was always this underlying tone of forgiveness. It was always this underlying tone of God's mercy and grace. He says if someone slaps you on the cheek, don't slap them back. Don't get even. Don't seek revenge. Now, be very careful. What I'm not saying is if somebody comes up to you and starts wailing on you, that Jesus says don't defend yourself. That's not what he says. I've heard people say, well, if somebody breaks into my house, I'm not going to do anything. Well, that's just dumb. Okay? Because Jesus didn't say that. People take this scripture and they twist it. What Jesus says is someone comes up to you and slaps you. That's a one-off, a one and done. They're not continuing to hit you. They slap you. Argument's over. What Jesus says is when they turn around and walk away, don't chase them down and go, hey, nah, -uh. hey, buddy, bam. That's, Jesus says that's not what we do. Jesus says they slap you and that's it. Like they're not threatening your life or continuing to beat you. They just slap you out of the heat of the moment. Jesus says turn the cheek. Turn the cheek. I'm going to tell you, be honest, that's very hard for me to do. I get it. But nobody ever said following Jesus was going to be easy. He says, don't retaliate, which would fly in the face of the world standard. That guy hit me. He's walking away. I'm going to hit him back. Verse 41. Look at verse 41. I love what he says here. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two with them. What he's saying is, at this time, Rome was in charge of Israel. And Roman soldiers were allowed by Roman law to force the citizens of that country to help carry their military gear. Like, you could be forced into helping carry that. But the law kept the, the soldiers in check by saying, you can only force one person to carry one mile. And that's it. So Jesus is talking about what they would know. And Jesus says, if you get stopped and they tell you to carry this pack or this military gear for one mile, you know what you do? You carry it a second mile. Why? Because he just got finished talking about being salt and light. And what better example of living a salt life, a, light of full of li a life full of light, than to be able to pick up that gear and start carrying it and not grumbling? Because how many times does that Roman soldier have somebody carry their stuff and all they did is they griped and complained the whole time? And as soon as they got to their mile, they dropped it and ran off. Jesus says, what kind of difference could you make if when they made you carry it, you picked it up and you didn't grumble and complain about it? And not only that, but when you got to your mile, you said, hey, I'll go another one with you. What kind of impact would that have on that soldier? He's never seen that before. And you know what you're also doing? Not only impacting that soldier, but you're keeping someone else from having to carry that burden. Jesus said, this is the life I'm calling you to. He says, keep it. What if we lived our life that way, didn't get back, didn't get even? Verse 30, 42 says, Jesus tells them to be generous even to people you know are using you. Be generous to people you know are never going to pay you back. Jesus said, just love people and be generous to them, which leads them to those last thing. Look in verse 43. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we're going to go too deep in this because we had a whole sermon on love not too long ago. But look at what a countercultural message that is that Jesus lays out by saying, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You want a shocker? Here's a shocker. Jesus never said you're not going to have enemies. We can't control what someone else thinks about us. But Jesus gives us a command to love our enemies. That changes the whole dynamic. They can think of me as an enemy. I'm going to love them. He's, he's commanding us to do 
what he is doing. To love like he loves, like God the Father loves. What sets us apart if we only love people who love us. What really can set apart his followers is those who can love when it hurts to love. What really sets us apart is those who can love when it costs something to love. Who can love when sacrifice is involved? Examine your love. Where is it aimed? Is it only aimed at those who love you or who can do stuff for you? Or are you loving those who have hurt you? Are you loving those who use you, who have turned their back on you? So this morning, this is, this is the whole sum of it right here. Let our light shine by sharing our faith, by living and loving differently, by making amends with someone we might have something against or they might have something against us, keeping our word, going back to God's standard of purity and holiness instead of just behavior modification, by not getting even and by just loving like Jesus loved. Church, let me have you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning for just a moment. I get it. That was a whirlwind. But right now with your head bowed and your eyes closed just for a minute, imagine you're there that day on the side of the mountain. And Jesus just dropped some huge truth bombs on you. Because his word is as powerful today and as meaningful today as it was 2,000 years ago on the side of that mountain. We just read from the words of Jesus. And so for the, listen, we can't leave here today thinking we escape any of that. Because I'm going to tell you right now, as the pastor, as your pastor, I'm not leaving here today escaped by any of that. It's just as hard for me to study this as it is for you to hear it. Because sometimes the word of God is quick and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces deep and it's uncomfortable. And some of you here today, God has pierced you. God has gotten a hold of your heart. There's some, some uncomfort level with you. But you're going to leave here today and you're going to walk out here with the Band-Aid still on. With the rot still growing underneath. With the questions still needing to be answered. With the lack of purpose. With the lack of direction. With going, God, what in the world are you doing? And God might be this morning just going, let me rip the Band-Aid off. It goes back to the first week when we talked about being meek, that we are, it doesn't mean we're weak. It just means we are responsive and we are tender and soft towards God and letting him work in our life, even when it's uncomfortable. I would not be a pastor if I only preached the good stuff in the Bible. I would not be a pastor if I only got up here and shared how happy your life can be and how everything. Listen, it's all there and it's all inspired and I'm commanded to preach the whole counsel of God. So this morning, what band-aid is there for you? What needs to come off? What enemies do you have in your life that you're not loving? Who is it you're harboring anger to? Who are you talking to that you need to talk to differently and season your words with grace? Who is it you need to make amends with this morning? Maybe they're in here. God said, delay your worship. Do not delay reconciliation. Do not delay making it right. Maybe this morning some of us are struggling, struggling with lust or thoughts that we have and we need to get them under subjection and give that to God this morning and take some drastic steps to avoid it. Maybe you've got some anger, some un, unresolved things in your life. I don't know. I don't know what Band-Aid you came in here with this morning. All I know is God did some ripping in my life, and I can only assume that he did some ripping in yours. But now that the Band-Aid's been tugged, now it's been ripped off, you know what can happen now? 
healing. Healing. Just like when you take the bandage off and the skin can start to form new skin. To the point where eventually it's not even there anymore. Healing can only take place in your life and my life when we let God do his work. So what is that for you this morning? I can't answer that for you. But I can ask you to respond. And you can respond right there where you're at. You can ask and pray, God, God, listen, you ripped some bandages off of my life this morning. Help me be soft and moldable to you. God, help me be forgiving. Help me love. Help me live like you want me to live. Or you can come down forward. You can, I'll be down here. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus. You don't have a relationship with him. You're like the crowd that day, that just the ordinary followers, and you just kind of were just there. Maybe today you're just here, but Jesus is reaching out to you going, hey, I've got, I've got a new life for you. I love you. I died for you, and I want to rescue you. Whatever it is God's dealt with in your heart this morning, I'm going to be here. I'd love to pray with you, or maybe you deal with him right where you're at. But we're going to pray, and then we're going to stand and worship together one last time. Will you let God work in your life? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you again for today. Thank you for your word and how powerful it is, even though sometimes it hurts. But God, where there's no pain, there's no growth. We praise you for working in our hearts. Thank you for working in my heart. And God, we give you this time of response this morning. Continue to work in the lives of your people. Help us to live what we say we believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me this morning and worship? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you have any questions about Morningstar Baptist Church or today's message, visit MorningstarDayton.org and choose Contact Us.